between now and Easter, we're going to be doing a uh, series, and unlike what I usually do, it'll be a topical series, a series about a certain theme, and the first text that we will be looking at is from Matthew. We're going to be looking at two texts in Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 23, and then we'll be turning over to chapter 18, and we'll be looking at verses 15 to 20 on the Bibles that are available to you. It's on page 911. So Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them." Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. As you know, we were away a couple weeks ago at a missions conference, and it was delightful to be at the missions conference, although we missed being here with you all. One of the wonderful things about being at a missions conference for missionaries is we get to hang out with other missionaries. And when missionaries get together, they talk about things that they don't normally talk about. It seems to me that missionaries are something like veterans, because veterans normally, as in my experience, don't go around talking about their, their experience in the military. But when they get with other veterans, they talk about it because they have something in common and they, they understand each other. And that's what happens with missionaries, and one of the things that we were talking about is our adjustment back to the United States, and one has been back for over 10 years, and he's still having trouble adjusting, and another has been back uh, for less than that, but trouble adjusting, and we were talking about that. And we were talking about what are the things that, that have taken us by surprise, and I have to say that American culture, U.S. culture, has not taken me by surprise. Basically, nothing in U.S. culture surprises me anymore. It's not, been, it's not been U.S. culture that surprises me. Um, it's really been more the U.S. church that has surprised me. Because I've had a very contrasting experience as I've come back into fellowship with the church in the United States. On the one hand, I have met some of the finest Christians on the planet. And I have seen grace work deeply in their lives. They are kind and generous and joyful and sacrificial and faithful and giving and humble and loving. And I see this flowing through them and through their children and their grandchildren. And I think the depth of the, of the work of grace in, in this country is remarkable. And how that, that grace flows from one generation to another. And so it's been very encouraging to see God's work in Christians. And then I've had other experiences that have left me 
confused and scratching my head. Sandy and I were walking along one day and met a man sitting in front of the house near where we live, and he was drinking a beer, and don't have any problem with him drinking a beer, but it, I don't think it was his first one, or his second, or maybe his third, I'm not sure, but he was, he was quite inebriated, and, and then I, I told him I was a pastor, and he immediately began to give me his testimony about his faith in Christ and how he had come to faith in Christ and began talking about his church. And and interspersed with this, he talked about what a difficult person he was and how hard-nosed, he used other words that I won't repeat, but talked about this sort of as a boast. And I went away scratching my head and thought, what does that mean? What did I just hear? I also keep hearing this creed. And I've heard this creed, it seems to be a universal creed, from people of Muslim, Jewish, and Christian background. And the creed goes like this, and you probably heard it. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And then when I scratch a little bit and I say, what do you mean by that? They say, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe, and they say something like, in organized religion or in the institutional church. And then I find among ministers, I've a number of stories of ministers that have disgraced themselves and then devastated their churches, and then they just move somewhere else, and they just start over again with a new ministry. Talking to a a woman at a level, not of a level of minister, but she was excommunicated from her church. And so she just moved to another state, and now uh, she decided that that excommunication was not valid. She just made that decision on her own, and and then she uh, now she's working in her church and helping to serve communion to others. And then I've had this experience of being out and meeting people. And when I meet people, I try to tell them as soon as I can that I'm a pastor. The reason is that will either end the conversation, and I can move on and talk to somebody else, or it will open up a conversation, which it often does. And uh, a lot of times people will say, well, I'm a Christian. And I'll say, well, tell me about your church. And they'll say, well, I I go to that church. um, It's over on Sample, or is it Copens? Um... And it's, I, I, I can't remember the name of it, but that, that's my church. Or they'll say, well, I don't really, really have a church. I'm just kind of, I'm kind of looking around now. Or they'll say, oh, well, the music out there is awesome. When they have this band, I go out to that church. And, and when I kick it up on Sunday mornings, you know, I go to a church Saturday evening because they have a good service on Saturday evening. And, and this, when, this, when this church has a, a special, a special speaker, I, I go there. Or I just walk across the street, whatever it might be. I, I kind of fit it in however I can. And I realize that I'm asking a different question than they're answering. I'm asking, who are the people with whom you're, you're integrated and giving your life and you're discipling them and they're discipling you? Who are the pastors who are shepherding you and taking care of you? Who are the elders who are, are watching over your soul? Who are the ones who are by your bed when you're in the hospital and by whose bed you are when you're in the hospital? And they're telling me, the flavors they like. They're telling me the, the religious services that they consume according to the needs of the day. And then I had this experience in our church where I made an attempt last year to form membership. Um, when people ask me, well, how's your church going? I tell them, it's going great. And then they say, well, how many members do you have? And I said, well, zero. <laughs> And I said, well, we, we tried to have a membership class, and a few people joined that. And some of you, I'm, I'm sorry for you all, you're waiting anxiously for this to be formed. And I'm sorry for you all, but I hit the pause button because I realized I needed to back up some because what I mainly accomplished by that membership course was to drive some people away. And I realized that I needed to back up. And so this is my pause and my back up to, to try to talk about what is the church. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks, talking about what is the church. And one final anecdote, and that is, I got to see a friend of mine, he was my college roommate, Mark Dever, and he has a church up, uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and he has a ministry called Nine Marks. It's not named after himself, Mark. It's named after Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And uh, he wrote this book, and you can see it's a a slender book, and they published uh, a number of these books, Nine Marks has. And they have these gripping titles. This one's called discipling. Then he has another one called the gospel. Another one called evangelism. These are catchy, aren't they? And then another one, this is gripping, church elders. 
sound doctrine, church membership, church discipline, the Lord's Supper, baptism. And these books are selling like hotcakes. And I've been reading these books, and actually I'm going to assign some of these books in my next course, and I did in my last course as well, because they're excellent. But when I read these books, I say, this is really basic, simple stuff. But it is falling upon the church of today as something new and something revolutionary. So what does all this say to me? What it says to me is Christianity is alive and well in the United States and is, is changing people's lives and it's, it's, it's uh, changing families and it's, uh, it's, it's showing itself and, and glorifying God. And at the same time, there is a missing element. There's a missing element in the life of many Christians, and that is the church. There is a low view of the church, so low that the church seems to have lost all authority whatsoever in the lives of believers. And we're going to try to address that with all of, starting today, all of the verses in the Gospels that mention the word church. I read them today. It appears only three times in all of the Gospels, and it occurs only here in Matthew. And so we're going to be looking at this to see what it teaches us about the church, particularly about the authority of the church. First, from chapter 16. Now, what's going on here is a little beyond the midpoint of uh, Matthew's Gospel. Jesus took his disciples to the northernmost part, and he was getting away from the crowds. He went to Caesarea Philippi, which was up in the, the very northern border of what was ancient Israel, because he was teaching them, and he put to them a decisive question. But first, before asking them that decisive question, he asked a, a, an opinion poll, and he said, he said what, do, what do people say about the Son of Man, referring to himself? Who do they say that the Son of Man is? And he responded, or they responded, by saying, well, there are a number of opinions, maybe Elijah, maybe one of the prophets, maybe Jeremiah, but they all were of the same sort of uh, category, that, that, that you're a prophet. And then Jesus put the question to them and said, but who do you say that I am? Now, the disciples had already made a remarkable discovery. If you go back to chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus had walked on the water. And after that, it said, those in the boat, once he joined them in the boat, uh, 1433, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So the disciples had already made this amazing declaration. But now Peter puts it all together, because they were suspecting that he was not only Son of God, but that he was also the Christ, that is, the Messiah, that is, the Anointed One, the One who was promised, the One who was coming. And so Peter puts it all together, speaking for all of them, and he said, You are the Christ. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus answered him, and he blessed him. He said, Happy are you, blessed are you. And he calls him Simon Bar-Jonah, giving him his full name there, Simon, son of Jonah, or son of John. And then he recognizes something. Jesus says, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And here he recognizes something very important. That is, that no one is able to make a, a proper, correct assessment of who Jesus is if it's not given to that person by God. This is a gift of God. Nobody in his or her own intelligence or wisdom, or scrutiny, or investigation comes to this on his own or her own. If anybody is able to discover who Jesus is, it's because God has given them that knowledge. It's not innate knowledge to us. And he says, this is something that is revealed to you. This didn't come from you, Simon. This is revealed to you, what you just declared. This is revealed from the Father. And then Jesus returned the favor. Peter had just said, you are... And now Jesus says to Peter, and you are. So he returns the favor and makes a declaration about Peter. And in verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, Peter is a common name today. It wasn't a common name in those days. This was an unusual nickname to call somebody Rocky, basically. 
that, that's what it amounts to. And Jesus gave him this nickname, Rocky, uh, Peter. And it's Petros, Petros, the masculine form. And uh, what he says here, and I tell you, you are Peter, you are Petros, and on this rock, Petra, Petra, that's the, the normal word for rock in, in, in the language, the Greek language, on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what was he saying to Peter? He was saying, Peter, finally, finally, I'm, I'm filling out this name for you. This name that I've given you, you are Peter, you're Petros. I'm filling it out because on you, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, and that church, and this is the first instance of this word church, assembly, in, in any of the Gospels. And he says, on you, on this Petra, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, the gates of hell, uh, this is maybe not the best translation. It's maybe the best we can do into English. But the idea of the gates of Sheol in the Old Testament, the Sheol, the place of the dead, or the gates of Hades in the New Testament, the Greek word, is not quite what we think of when we think of hell. When we think of hell, we think of eternal damnation. We think of punishment. But Sheol or Hades are vaguer concepts. They are death, basically. So the gates of death. In other words, he's saying death will not overcome you. The gates of death will not overcome you. Uh, rather, what will happen? That the church will overcome death itself. It will have a life-giving ministry. Death itself will not prevail against the church. Rather, the church will prevail over death. And then he says something which was also a concept that was existent in Judaism. And it says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This idea of keys, this was in Judaism and in the prophets, and the idea of keys was the administrator, not the owner. This was the one who had the keys to open and shut the storehouses or the gates. It wasn't the one who owned things, it was the one who was able to give access or not to things, the administrator. And it says here that I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind shall be bound, and whatever you loose shall be loosed. Once again, this was a Jewish concept of binding and loosing. What did that mean? Binding was forbidding. Forbidding. It was looking at God's law, and it was seeing what God has revealed, and saying, no, this is not in accordance with what God has revealed. This is bound. This is forbidden. Or, if this idea, this belief, this action was in accordance with what God had revealed, then it was loosed. It was permitted. Because this is, this is in keeping with what God has already revealed. Now, there's a very curious tense to these verbs. And it's not brought out here because it's an awkward tense in Greek. It's very uncommon. And it's very awkward in English. But if you have footnotes in your Bible, you will find it in the footnotes. Let's look at this. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth... And here's where the strange tense comes in. And it's, it's so strange that I think we should probably pay attention to it and translate it strangely into English. So whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. This is a future perfect construction. Perfect tense, we form that in English by saying, have, I have been, she has been. And uh, future, we talk about will in the future. And so past usually refers to the, or perfect usually refers to something in the past. Future refers to the future. But this is combined here. So look at this. It says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This changes things, doesn't it? Because if we look at it the way it's translated here, and in most Bibles, by the way, I'm not criticizing these, it's, it's a very awkward construction. Normally we think, okay, Peter binds something and then it's bound in heaven. Peter looses something and then it's loosed in heaven. But if we look at the tense, it says, shall have been bound. And so, which is first? Peter's binding or the binding in heaven? 
Well, if it already shall have been bound in heaven by the time Peter gets to binding it, then he's responding to what has already been bound. If it shall be loosed, or shall have already been loosed, what Peter looses on earth, then it's already been loosed. So how can we look at this? Well, we can look at it in the context. Peter declares, you are the Christ. And it looks like Peter's coming up with something, doesn't it? And it's something new in the Gospels. But what has Jesus said? You didn't get that from yourself. That's previous to you. That was given to you. And so just what you did, just now, you will help others do. So something was given to you from heaven, and you declared it. And now, when you see in others that which is from heaven, that which has already been bound by heaven, that which has already been loosed by heaven, then you can say, yes, that's divine revelation. Yes, that comes from God. Are you with me? So, it's already been bound in heaven, already been loosed in heaven. It's divine revelation, and Peter recognizes that. And Jesus is giving them the authority to do that. Now, um, what we're going to do now is ask three questions. The three questions are these. Did Jesus give Peter unconditional authority here? That is, authority that is attached to his person no matter what Peter is saying or doing. Well, um, I think we can answer that by continuing to read here. Because Jesus, in verse 20, says, He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that He was the Christ. Now that's odd, isn't it? They come to this momentous discovery. It's revealed to them by God. They declare He's the Christ, and He says, Blessed are you, this is a gift of God, don't tell anyone. Now why not? Two reasons, probably. One is, it wasn't time yet for them to go telling everyone. Later that would come. The other is, they didn't really understand yet what that meant that he was the Christ. And we know that because he began to tell them what that meant that he was the Christ. He began to tell them, verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, he's putting a third, a third strain of Old Testament teaching here. And Peter had brought two of these together. Peter had brought together that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah. But there is another strain of New Testament teaching which is about the suffering servant of the Lord. And the suffering servant was going to die and he was going to give his life in place of others and he was going to take away their sins by dying in their place. And these two were not connected in Jewish thinking. The Messiah and the suffering servant. Because the Messiah would come and he would be the son of David and he would conquer and he would get rid of these, these vile Romans who were oppressing them. But the idea that the Messiah would come and suffer and die and be rejected and rise, that, that wasn't a connection that they made. And Peter hadn't made it yet either. So it wasn't yet time for him to be declaring this because he hadn't made the full connection yet. Son of God, Messiah, suffering servant. And so, what does Peter do? He takes him aside and he begins to rebuke Jesus. And he says very strongly, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And then Jesus turned to Peter and used a very, very strong rebuke to Peter. He said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, a stumbling block to me. You remember the rock? Now he's a rock that's in the way. He's a stumbling block that Jesus needs to remove from his path, to get him behind him. Because Jesus had already heard something like this, hadn't he? If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, you have the temptation of Jesus in the desert. And that temptation was for Jesus to take shortcuts to glory, not go to the cross. And now here Peter is sounding just like Satan. And that's why he says, get behind me, Satan. I've heard this before. This is a shortcut. This is a stumbling block. This is not the way. He says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, why is that important in this context? It's important because we need to tie Peter's first confession to the declaration that he was the rock of the church. Because when he began speaking satanic-type words, 
Jesus said, you're a stumbling block. So what that means is that the authority that, that Jesus gave to Peter was not a, some sort of a personal authority that Peter had in his person regardless of what he was doing or saying. No, that authority was connected to a, a confession of what has been bound and loosed in heaven. A confession of what is true about Jesus. That He is the Son of God, that He is the Christ, and the missing piece that Peter eventually got was that the Christ is the one who is rejected, who dies, who gives His life so that those who trust in Him might be forgiven for all of our sins. And then He rose on the third day and He conquered over death and sin and hell. That, Peter eventually put that together, but he didn't have it yet. So he wasn't yet ready to be the rock. That's the first question. The second question is, how did Peter exercise this authority? Fortunately, we have the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we find that Peter was there at crucial junctions. If you look at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, Jesus had said, wait in Jerusalem, and the the disciples were waiting in Jerusalem. There were about 120 of them by that time. And Jesus poured out upon them what He had promised, the Holy Spirit. This is the day of Pentecost. And then... People said, what's going on here? Because they were speaking in known languages, but not known to them. They were speaking in languages that they didn't know, but other people knew. And they were hearing these, and they're saying, how are these Galileans speaking in our tongues? And they said, they must be drunk. And Peter said, it's only, what, nine in the morning. We're not drunk. And he got up and he preached. And he preached to these Jews, and these were Jews and proselytes to Judaism from all over the Roman Empire. And the list is is remarkable from where these people had come. And he preached to them. And thousands were belie- believed that day in Jesus as the Christ. And they were baptized. Peter was there to open the door to loose the kingdom upon the Jews. And then, a few chapters later, in Acts chapter 8, Philip got the idea... Philip was a bit ahead of his time. He figured some things out before others did. And Philip began preaching the gospel to Samaritans. Now, Samaritans were mestizo people. They were half Jew, half Gentile, and they were despised by the Jews. But Philip preached the gospel to them. And many responded. And that city where he preached the gospel, it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 8, there was much joy in that city. Well, then the news got back to the apostles in Jerusalem that the Samaritans had believed. And so they sent Peter and John to go check this out. And so Peter and John go check this out, and they see evidence of faith, and they pray, and once again the Holy Spirit is poured out, not only on Jews, but now on Samaritans. Amazing. And then it says that as they were returning as they were returning from their journey, and this is verse 25, now when they, Peter and John, had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans too. So there's Peter. He's the the base on which the church was being built among the Jews, now among the Samaritans. And then, Peter had a dream. And it was a strange dream about a sheet being lowered down, it had all these unclean animals in it, and the dream, the dream, the, the voice said, Peter, kill and eat, and he said, gross, this, I'm a Jew, I don't eat these unclean animals, I, I've never done that. And then the voice in the dream said, what God has called clean, don't you dare call unclean. And then some people arrived at his gate saying, Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman, a non-Jew, a Gentile, wants you to come and go to his house. Peter said, okay, based on this dream, he wasn't sure why he was going, but he goes to the house. And then he shows up and he still doesn't know why he's there. And he says, I came because I had a dream and I was told to come, but why do you want me here? And Cornelius said, well, I had a dream too. And in that dream, I was told that I would call for someone named Simon and he would come and he would give us words of eternal life. And we're all here. My whole family's here. My friends are here. Tell us. And Peter realized he was to preach the gospel to these Gentiles as well. And he did. 
He preached the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And lo and behold, just like at Pentecost, just like among the Samaritans, among the Gentiles, guess what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on them as well. And this was astonishing to the Jews. They had not considered that non-Jews could be Christians. And then Peter said, well, they should be baptized too. They have the Spirit just like we do. And then they were baptized as well. So, what do we have? What's Peter? What role is he playing? Foundation for the starting of the church among the Jews, among the Samaritans, and among the Gentiles. Loosing. There are also a couple of instances of binding. There's an instance here among the Samaritans. He preached the gospel there. The Holy Spirit fell. And there was a magician, also named Simon, same name. And he professed Christ. And then he saw that people received the Holy Spirit by Peter laying on his hands. He said, that is amazing. I want that. How much will it cost me to be able to give the Holy Spirit by, by laying my hands on people? And uh, Peter, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered the magician, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. What was Peter doing? He was binding He was binding. He was saying, this is not in keeping with what is revealed from God. You cannot buy the Holy Spirit. And if you think you can buy the Holy Spirit, I am binding this idea. And therefore, if you profess this idea, you have no part in the church of Jesus Christ. There was another instance where it wasn't so much an idea that was being bound, but an action. If you go back to chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira... They had a piece of property. They sold their piece of property. And the, the money was theirs to do whatever they wanted with it. And they took part of it to the church and they gave it to the church. All well and good. That was fine what they did. But they said to the church, this is the whole thing. We're giving 100%. They wanted to be known as more generous than they were. And they were generous enough already. That's remarkable what they did. But they lied to the church. And Peter said, you have not lied to the church, but you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And Ananias breathed his last and fell down. So we see Peter mostly loosing, opening up the kingdom to those who profess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the suffering servant. But sometimes we saw him binding as well by excluding those whose beliefs or whose lives were out of keeping with what is revealed from God. Now, that's the second question. The third question is this, and this will get us into the next text. Who exercises this authority now? Peter's no longer here, is he? Who exercises this authority of binding and of loosing, of opening and closing? Well, one answer that uh, arose and exists to this day um, is that the Bishop of Rome does. This is something that took place after the New Testament times. Uh, the Bishop of Rome began to, to take more and more prominence in the church. Eventually, he was called the Pope. And eventually, this is after the New Testament times, they began to say, well, he's actually the successor of Peter. And so he's the one that has the keys of the kingdom. And uh, in favor of this idea is the idea that somebody has to have the keys. And so they were looking for the keys. Somebody has to have the keys after Peter is gone. But against this idea is that there is no hint in the New Testament of Peter having a successor, and there is no hint in the New Testament of Rome having any prominence, or any other church having any prominence over any other church. So, we need to look elsewhere for the keys of the kingdom. Fortunately, there is one other text who tells us who exercises those keys now. And that's in chapter 18 of Matthew. Matthew 18 There is a procedure here in verse 15. And this procedure is when a brother sins. And you're concerned about that brother, a fellow believer sins, and you want to help that brother or sister avoid destroying himself or destroying herself. And you're calling that person back. And Peter, Jesus gives a 
a beautiful, simple procedure for helping each other. He says, if you see somebody who has fallen into sin, a brother or sister, don't talk to anyone else except that person. Go to that person, you and that person alone, and talk to this person and try to win this person back from self-destructive behavior. And if you, if you can do that, great, you have won your brother back. If you can't do that, if, if he refuses to listen to you, well, take along a couple others. Don't make it a big deal, but take along a couple others. And, and those couple others can join with you in, in remonstrating and, and pleading with his brother to turn from this, this self-destructive behavior. And then Jesus says, but if, if still this brother or sister is hard-hearted and won't respond, then, then you have to take it to the church. And this is the next time that this is mentioned here, this word church. Take it to the church. And then if this person refuses to listen to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. That is to say, like Peter did, say you don't have a part here anymore because your, your life is not in keeping with being a part of the assembly, the church. And then he says, after this procedure, verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, have you heard this before? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same strange verb tenses. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. But there is a difference that doesn't come out in English. And the difference is in singular or plural. When he said this to Peter, he used singular. You, singular. But now when he says it, he says, y'all. You all. You, plural. He's speaking to multiple people. And he's now giving this, this authority, the exercise of the keys of the kingdom, to the local assembly. Now, the conclusion is this. The conclusion is this, and the answer to this third question. The local church has the authority to declare who is a believer in Jesus Christ by looking at this person's confession of faith, or hearing this person's confession of faith, and observing this person's life, and and declaring whether the confession and the life is in keeping with what is revealed from God, or not in keeping with what is revealed from God. Now, on the one hand, this should be an obvious statement, because every organization on the planet functions this way. Every organization on the planet has the authority to say who belongs to it and who does not. Who has the benefits of being a part of it and who does not. Who is in keeping with its ideals and its lifestyle and who is not. And who is obligated to observe its rules and who is not. So, when we come to this conclusion, we should say, well, yeah... Of course. I mean, who else would do that other than the church? And here we see Jesus giving this authority to the church. But on the other hand, this grates on us, especially as individualistic Western people. It grates on our idea that nobody tells me who I am. I can self-identify I can self-determine. And nobody else should be able to tell me if I am a Christian or not. We see this is, our society is shot through with this, and it's become a a social and political uh, problem because we have people in our society that say, I was born this sex, but now I'm going to declare myself, identify myself with this. And in our country, they're certainly free to do that, but the difficulty is that they are saying, I want everyone else to recognize and ratify my self-declaration. And the difficulty of that is that there are spaces and there are activities that are exclusively for one sex or another. There are teams, there are hospitals, there are prisons, there are bathrooms, and so on. Now, why am I bringing that up? I'm bringing that up to point out to you that we Christians have led the way in this sort of thinking. If we're surprised at this, we ought not to be. 
Because we have led the way in saying we are the ones in declaring ourselves without anybody else's opinion. We are the ones who are able to declare that we are Christians. And nobody else can say any differently. And I don't need anyone else to ratify my self-identification. Now, um, why do we need to recover a biblical idea about the authority of the church? Why do we need to go against, as difficult as it might be as Western people and individualistic people, why do we need to recover a, a biblical idea of the authority of the church to declare who is in keeping with God is what God has revealed and who is not? The reason is because the health of Christianity depends on this. It may depend on other things as well, but it depends on the church being able to say who is and who is not in keeping with what God has revealed to us. Only with that kind of authority can the church thrive. In fact, only with that kind of authority can any organization thrive. We could pick any organization you want. I'll pick one. Let's, let's think of the Broward Sheriff's Office. Okay? An organization. And as I understand the Broward Sheriff's Office, you have to have training, you have to have testing, you have to have trial periods, and then finally you're declared to be a Broward Sheriff. And then you're able to wear the badge, you're able to wear the gun, you're able to drive the car, you're able to do things the Broward Sheriff can do. Let's say the Broward Sheriff says, well, we're just going to throw it open. And what we're going to do every morning is that anybody who wants to self-identify as a Broward Sheriff just come to this place, we'll have the cars lined up, we'll have the badges lined up, and we'll have the weapons lined up. And if you feel in your heart, and you're convinced sincerely that you are a Broward Sheriff, then grab a badge, grab a gun, grab a car, and go do it. How many of you would like to live in Broward County under a situation like that? Pick any organization you want and do that mind experiment and then bring it back to the church. And you see that the church cannot thrive and be healthy if it's just thrown open to the personal opinion of anyone regardless of what they believe and regardless of how they live their lives. And in addition to that, our own health as Christians depends on this as well. Now, we will be building this over these next weeks to talk about the benefits and the blessings of being a committed part of Christ's church and why we need that and why others need for us to need that. But let me just mention a few illustrations that might point out the, the, the benefit and the, the, the need that we have not only to declare ourselves and to have an opinion about ourselves, but have others to say, yes, we recognize you as a brother or as a sister. You know about the dreamers, right? These are people who have grown up in the United States. Uh, they many times speak only English. They... Uh, weep when they hear the national anthem. They cheer during the Olympics for the, the American teams. In their hearts, they are American citizens, U.S. citizens. They oftentimes don't know that they're not because everything in their experience tells them that they belong here. But they're lacking one important thing that changes their lives. They don't have one of these. They don't have an official declaration that says what you feel in your heart, what you confess with your mouth, your allegiance and your love for this country, they have no one to say, we agree with you and you're one of us. Now, I'm not bringing that up to say what should be done about these things politically. I'm pointing out the difference it makes to be a part. My passport says this, the Secretary of the United States of America hereby requests all whom it may concern to permit the citizen of the United States named herein, and my name's on the next page, full name, there it is, 
to pass without delay or hindrance and in case of need to give all lawful aid and protection. Wherever I go in, in the world, the Secretary of State's got my back. The Secretary of State is saying, he's one of ours, and you better not mess with him. You better give him everything that the law requires you to give him, and you better protect him from any sort of harm that shouldn't come to him. That's what it means to belong. I have another card. I use my passport a lot. Not lately. I used to use it all the time. Not since I moved back to the States. But I got another card that I never have used in my life. And this card says, I get this every year, and then I just put it away, and then I throw it away, and I get the new one. It says, this card certifies that Reverend Lawrence Calvin Trotter, that's, that's I, is an ordained minister in good standing in the Presbyterian Church in America. By the stated clerk of the General Assembly, L. Roy Taylor, January 1st, 2019, and then there's a, an address on the back where you can, you can verify this information. Now, I've never needed this card, but what this card signifies is very important to me, and it's very important to you, because this says here that I'm an ordained minister in good standing in the Presbyterian Church of America. But I have to say to you that there are many times when I don't feel like it, but I don't feel like I should be. And I look at my life, and I, I, I look at how far there is to go and how short a distance I have already come. I look at the lack of fruitfulness in my ministry. I look at the lack of godliness in my life. I look at the lack of prayer in my life. I look at my sins, and I say to myself, and here Ron is, is nodding as a fellow minister, I say to myself, and you call yourself a minister of the gospel? How dare you? Who do you think you are calling yourself a minister of the gospel? And then I remember that it's not just that I call myself a minister of the gospel. It's that the church calls me a minister of the gospel. The church listened to what I believe and examined me thoroughly. And the church looked at my life and said, we want you to be a minister of the gospel and we are, we are behind you and we will support you and we will call you to account if you get out of line. That's important for me because in the dark days of ministry that all ministers of the gospel have, as we had, as we got to Guadalajara 28 years ago and for years seemed to be having a ministry that wasn't fruitful, and I asked myself, what am I doing here? Somebody else should be doing this. Why am I here? Am I fit for this? Am I apt for this? And I'd say, well, I'm here, not just by personal decision. I'm here because the church sent me here. And the church is sustaining me here. And that is what got me through a number of dark periods, and I'm sure will in the future as well. And that's a good thing for you, by the way. That's a good thing for you, that you have a minister who is under authority, that isn't here simply because he made some sort of a personal decision about his life. But not only do ministers of the gospel have that, all Christians who are part of the church have this. You may not have a card, but you have a certificate. If you are a member of the church of Jesus Christ, there is something that has been given to you that declares you to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And that is something that you need in those dark days. It's called baptism. Baptism is that, that seal of approval of the church, which is expressing that seal of approval of God on your life. That's the, the loosing, reflecting the loosing that's already taken place in heaven. How does that work? Martin Luther was a reformer in the 16th century. And like a surprising number of great men of God, he was given to fits of depression and fits of despair in his life when, when he could find very little reason for hope. And as I have read about this man who had such a formidable role in the recovery of, of biblical Christianity in his day, he was heard sometimes, and he wasn't bashful about this, he was heard sometimes yelling, yelling at the top of his lungs, I am baptized. 
I am baptized. Now what was he saying? He was saying, when I look at my life, I find no reason for hope. When I look at my own faith, I find how weak it is. I find myself given to despair and depression and the hopelessness. And I can't even find evidence of Christianity in me. But the church has my back. The church has declared that I, even I, am a Christian. And that's one of the ways, and we'll be seeing others as we go along, that we need that declaration of the church. But not only does the church have our back, Jesus has our back. Not only is the church for us and with us, Jesus is for us and with us. And that's how this this section ends. Jesus says in verse 19, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I'm for you as you gather, as few as you might be as you gather in Christ's name, I'm for you. But not only that, he says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. One of the great things about the church is that we get to see each other when we come here. And I missed you all when I was away these couple weeks, and I am so glad to see you all again and to be here with you. But there's something even better about gathering with the church. Jesus is here. And we get to meet with Him. You say, how's that work? I'm not sure exactly how that works. In the Old Testament, God is everywhere. And in the Old Testament, God meets with His people at the temple. In the New Testament, God is everywhere. And God, Jesus who is God, meets with His people in a special way when we gather together. Jesus is for us. And Jesus is with us. That's the best thing about the church. Let's pray. Our God... We don't call to You as a God who is far off, but we call to You as a God who is with us here because Jesus by His Spirit is among us whenever we gather, even down to two or three. And I've certainly been been in many meetings with two or three gathered in Your name. And I thank You that You are there with us. Lord, we thank You for Your church. We thank You that You have called us not only to be individual believers, but You have called us to be Your people. And I pray for our little fraction of Your church. And I pray for all the other churches around us and around the globe that we would believe what You have revealed for us to believe in the Gospel and that we would live lives that are in accordance with what You have revealed to us. And so, may our lives shine in such a way that the church would not be in a situation, a sorry situation of having a terrible reputation, but rather that the church would be praised by all, even if hated by some, by the integrity of our faith and the integrity of our lives. God, help us to recover an appreciation for Your bride, the one for whom Christ gave His life, Your beloved church. And we thank You, O God, that we can be part of her. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.